Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Toad Hop, Indiana. <laughs> now, Ray, you just moved to Indiana. Right. Is it close to Toad Hop? Are you uh, I have no up? idea. You have but, no idea. But more than two blocks from where I am, I have no idea. Ah, okay. So it could be close, but I have no idea. So toad hop could be close. See any toads in your yard? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, is that is that what you expect from the city? Well, I'm assuming there you'd see a lot of toads. I'm assuming it was named after seeing some toads hop through something. Who knows? <laughs> oh, we started last week a series on nonverbal communication, and our thinking was we would like to just explore, not in any particular order several of the elements that we identified of nonverbal communication last week. And we just set the landscape, tried to give our listeners the lay of the land on how nonverbal communication is referred to in terms of specific element. And then what we thought we'd do is walk through some of them more specifically to talk about behaviors that one, they might be on the lookout for, two, that they might employ. And we wanted to explore today the concept of personal space and proxemics. And there's some fun stuff there. From our last episode, I was really hammering on the idea of let's be sure we know nonverbal communication from a research perspective and not from the speculation perspective. Well, interestingly and surprisingly, there's an awful lot of research in this area that speaks to very universal. And when I say universal, I mean by culture, because what is true in the U.S. is not necessarily true in another culture. And so many of the nonverbal cues and many of the nonverbal elements in this notion of proximity and space are really culturally driven. Very much so. And I think people who don't travel a lot or are not familiar with other cultures really can find themselves at odds with a culture. I mean, for example, the Japanese don't honor personal space the way we do. So everything is congested. I remember when I was working for Ingersoll Milling Machine Company, we had to send some work teams over to Japan, people who were on the factory floor. These are people who are familiar with the machinery, not with people. And one of the things that happened was within a week or two of them being there, these people would be in fights. Hmm. And we'd have to bring them home. <laughs> and, when, and when they were interviewed as to why they were getting a fight in the international science, they would say, they were constantly up in my face and they gave me no room. And I'd back them off and they'd come back closer and I felt like, okay, I'll make my space. Well, that is one of the things. And what the literature says, so we give a kind of framework or a concept, if you've never heard about it before, that those who have studied personal space talk about distance zones. In the mid-1960s, an anthropologist named Edward T. Hall did a seminal work on interpersonal nonverbal communication by establishing the concept of proxemics. In fact, he even coined the term. And in identifying proxemics, he identified that in the Western culture, there were four main distance zones. The first distance zone was from zero to 18 inches, and it was entitled the intimate distance zone. 
Then he identified the second distance zone as 18 inches to four feet or 48 inches. And he referred to that as the personal distance zone. And he suggested that's where most of our personal conversation occurs is within that four foot space. From four feet to 12 feet is what he referred to as the social distance zone. And that's where we engage in most of our generalized social interactions. And then the last distance zone he identified was 12 feet and beyond, which he referred to as the public distance zone. Well, as you were just describing your experience, in different cultures, those zones may not exist. I have my own story. When I came here to do graduate work and lived in married housing, I would ride the bus to campus. Well, the majority of students who lived in married housing were Middle East students or Asian students. And it was not uncommon to get on the bus and my stop was the first stop, take my seat. And for the very next stop, with an entirely empty bus, was someone to get on the bus that I didn't know and sit right next to me. And it would drive me crazy. I would say, wait, what are you doing here? We got this entire bus. Why are you sitting right next to me? And then as if to make matters worse, they wouldn't mind leaning against me, making actual personal contact, you know, with the shoulder of that. And I would just be as fidgety and as squirming as I possibly could Because in my view, and in the view of this distance zones, they were violating my space because they were in the intimate space and I didn't know them as an intimate. And so that was very uncomfortable. So this stuff is real. It's kind of fun to talk about. And we've all probably got examples. Yeah, you want to jump in, Bear? One of the ones I think is interesting is the elevator spacing. I mean, I can have someone stand shoulder to shoulder with me, zero inches, virtually rubbing. And as long as they're both facing out, it's a non-issue. If I were to all of a sudden turn and face that person from that distance, it would be like a springboard where it would just require us to separate. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of elevator phenomena that you can get into certain spots where that distance can close down. It's not uncomfortable if you're facing out. Assume a posture that doesn't invade the front space. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, this space is real. Okay, well, create a picture of the personal space that we live in. What do you know to be the dimensions of most people's personal space? Well, actually, what we know is, and they refer to it as the bubble, that you have a bubble wrapped around you that's three feet in distance. And if anybody invades that three feet, what will happen is you'll begin to try to move away. The moment that space is invaded, you begin to make moves to increase that space. So you maintain that three-foot distance. And so that's one of the impacts of it, is that we react to that and try to reclaim that bubble. That's not necessarily true of people we consider intimate friends. That's right. There's a space adjustment based on the person you're connected to or or you're in contact with. And yet here's what the research would suggest. That even if it's an intimate, if we're not doing intimate things or talking about intimate things, we will actually create that space. We will maintain a space as a result of the nature of the conversation. So I think it is an interesting thing. We've been coaching recently, an individual about coaching and about doing performance reviews. And we were talking about the notion of how you might arrange chairs in order to maximize that performance review. Well, one of the things that we've got to say is you don't, even when you arrange your chairs, you don't want to get inside that three-foot distance zone. Because when you do that, you are actually creating a more personal conversation that may be more painful because of the kind of feedback the person's receiving. 
In fact, I'll give you a statistic that I think is great fun. We actually studied in the field of communication the width of executive desk, the distance from where the executive sits to the opposite side. And we said, obviously, they're not working stations. There's nothing on those desks. It's just a clean desk. So why would they be the width they are? Well, people guess all kinds of things, three feet, four feet. You're smiling. Do you have an idea of what that's? No, I'm I'm anxious to hear. The average width of an executive desk is six feet. I was going to say 54 inches, but I don't know why I would say that. And even some of them can be a little less than that, like five feet, but the average width is six feet. And that's because when I fire you, I don't want you to take this personal. I don't want us to be in a personal space here. Now, our culture's changing in our whole organizational world and how we organize furniture and all those things. And we're going to talk about those future episodes about artifacts and physical space and things like that. But at this moment, I think we need to realize some artifacts and some furniture and all kinds of things are really designed to address this issue of social distance zone. I'm smiling and laughing because when you said six feet, that means that they can't reach you in one jump. That's right. <laughs> it would be designed so that they can't deliver a blow from that distance. <laughs> I have been in offices where that's so obvious mm-hmm. that the executive that's in there has structured their office so that people cannot easily get to them. None of the conversations would be considered very personal or intimate. In some offices, even if the exec doesn't want it, what it says is, I'm not that close to you. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've got a great story in that regard, but I, I think I want to make the point first. Another piece of research made a distinction between the high status people and low status people. And what are some of the things we know about high status people and low status people in terms of this notion of space? And we learned three things. One, high status people have the right to violate your space if you're a low status person. They can walk right into it. They can initiate contact. Second thing we know about high status people is they have more space. Clearly, we've learned from a lot of different studies that as you go up in the organization, your offices get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's one of the indications of status. And then the third thing we know about high status people from the research, and this is very consistent, is their space is more well protected. It takes more to get to them than it does to low-status people. Years ago, I had spoken at a banquet, and a person had come up to me and told me as a young person I had done a very good job. And I later on said, who was that person? And someone else says, oh, that was S.S. Kresge, the head of Kresge Dime Stores, the future head of Kmart. And so I decided I would reach out to him and see if he'd be willing to support me in this ministry. Well, he was more than willing So I find out his address is at the top of the First National Bank building in Detroit. So I go into his office, and it takes me six secretaries to get to him. And then when I get in his office, it's this huge room where his desk, which is a giant desk, much more than six feet wide, is sitting in the middle of the room. Hence, two things immediately, more space and more well-protected space. And then we sit for 30 minutes telling jokes to one another. And I am thinking, this is so strange because the individual is absolutely delightful, interesting, and fun as a person, but everything about him says power. So that was where I first learned about space in terms of high-status, low-status people. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, historically, that's been true. Now, I don't know what it's going to be like with this remote culture, but it does seem like that's what people expect as they move into those roles, Mm -hmm. is that they'll have that opportunity to have larger spaces. They'll be more well-appointed, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. 
and not necessarily considering what that does to the dynamic of communication, but only because it gives them the status like you've referred to that they feel is commensurate with the role. Yes. Now, in this regard, I have two specific recommendations that I would encourage listeners to think about in terms of the use of nonverbal behavior and the use of this information. One is how desks are arranged when you walk in and how you position yourself in reference to the other person can cut off of that distance. So for example, we go into an executive office or we go into any office, most typically chairs are arranged on the desk opposite side of the desk chair where the individual sits. One of the things you can do if you're bold enough is to ask if you can move a chair to the side of the desk if it's not set up that way. In fact, I often encourage my students if they really wanted to demonstrate leadership and demonstrate they're not going to put themselves in a low status position with the interviewer, was when they went into the interview room, if it was set up where that chair was sitting directly opposite of the individual, that they would ask if they could move the chair to the side. And what they end up doing is creating a completely different conversation. Because what we know from the research is when you're working at 90 degree angles, you are by definition, non-verbally creating a more cooperative communication arrangement. One thing I think you can definitely use in this area of proximus is to cut off that space and put it at an angle by moving a chair. And if you're on the other side, you can create that more cooperative arrangement by setting up in your arrangement. Now, I'm not sure, as you said, in our new remote situation, how we do that on Zoom. Thoughts on that or you have an example? Well, yeah, I was thinking of office and furnishings and so on. It's always to your advantage if you can arrange it to have a space that maybe have a, a small round table mm-hmm. that you can sit around so there are no corners, and that can create that conversational space that's more intimate. And yet you need a desk for when visitors come in who are salesmen or other professionals, and you're not going to be conversing in a more interpersonal sense, you're going to be conversing around business issues, that that space be available to you. Mm-hmm. So if you could arrange your office that way, that would be great. But if you can't and you only have a desk, I couldn't agree more with you that you cut off the corner. You yeah. sit on that corner so that that person feels like there is something between you, but it's not a barrier. We're really talking about this understanding of nonverbal space. Now, given what we just talked about in terms of the three things we know about high status and low status people, the one other observation I would make is that if you want to demonstrate that you're not going to be considering yourself a low-status person in reference to whoever it is you're encountering, then one of the things that I would suggest is to initiate contact because that extends itself to the idea that high-status people get to initiate contact and low-status people don't. And I think of students in an interview situation as low-status. If they walk in and extend their hand first rather than wait for the interviewer, what they're saying is, I'm a little different here. Whether they know it or not and whether the interviewer knows it or not, They are communicating, I'm taking the initiative. My personal experience with this is I had the chance of being a consultant for U.S. uh, Commission on the Urban Forest. And as a result of doing that, I was facilitating this council. We ended up being in the White House, and we ended up getting a photo op with Barbara Bush. And so it was all set up. Each of the commission members were going to go forward. Barbara Bush was going to come into this room, and each of us would shake hands with Barbara Bush, get a picture, and then step out of the way, and the next person would come up. Well, each council member was walking up. She would extend her hand. He would take it, turn and look at the camera, take a picture, and leave. Well, you can anticipate what I was going to do. When I walked up, and I was the very last one because I was a facilitator, before she could extend her hand, I stuck my hand out. 
And I extended my hand and shook hands with her. And she said to me, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I, I have to confess, I thought that is really funny. And she's sharp. And she smiled real big and she turned and took our picture and I walked off. But my point would be, it's so well known that you do that, that you don't even realize you're not doing it. And yet I would really encourage people to take the risk to assert themselves by shaking hands first. Reactions to that or thoughts on that? Well, no, I think that's a great story and very clear that, yeah, high status people feel the initiative is all theirs. And when you change that rule and you step in, you can, with most, gain a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. But you're not waiting to be told. You're not waiting to be heard. You're initiating contact as if you have the right to be in this conversation. There's and- one area of proxemics that to me has always been very important. And it's the one big rule that I think people need to observe. And that is in your contact with others and the space that you're in with them it is always important to be speaking at eye level. Mm. That you cannot afford to have people looking down on you or you looking down on them. I think one of the clearest examples of that is people work well with children. They always get down to the child's level and look them directly in the eye. And they speak on the eye level. And kids respond to that. Because one, to speak to someone who's looking from a six-foot high position and you're three feet tall, you have really got to be in pain to keep your neck craned so that you can see them. Mm-hmm. And so when that adult gets down to eye level, it makes it so much easier for a child to communicate. But even between adults... I've been in office spaces where someone's been irate and they've come in and they're standing up and they're virtually screaming, yelling, maybe not at the person who's in the office, but about something to the persons in the office. And if that person doesn't stand or invite the person to sit down immediately, and if they don't stand, that will get worse, not better. Hmm. It would be very difficult to control, to manage that conversation. Because a person is using all their energy to speak down to you, mm-hmm. to intimidate you. And so when you choose to stand or have them say, please, have a seat, that takes out some of that air from them. Interesting. Very valuable. So I, I really think that's a critical rule, that if you truly are interested in being perceived as wanting to communicate, you always work at an eye level. Otherwise, if you're above someone, you're talking down to them. And if they're above, they're talking down to you. Well, we will move on to even more topics in nonverbal communication. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 